I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theatre writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Uphoff Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 73 of Theatre Forward. Hello. And in this episode, we are going to talk about what's been going on in the theatre world of late, thanks to the impacts of Omicron. Uh, And I will just uh, start off by saying that in many ways, we feel uh, very fortunate here at Forward because we closed our most recent production the weekend before Thanksgiving. And we don't start rehearsals for our next one until February 1st. So in many ways, we have been spared the worst of the um, complications and decision making that many of our peers have been struggling with over the past, uh, you know, four to six weeks. Um, On the other hand, I think it's put us in a better position to kind of observe what everyone else has been struggling with over these these past weeks. And so uh, we just really wanted to talk about it for those who are not on the the inside of these kinds of decisions. Um, uh, What kinds of what kinds of conversations are being had? I mean, I can, I'll, I'll start us off with one. I mean, we decided in early December that we were going to require all of the people who work with us, and this goes from staff to actors on stage to backstage crew, et cetera, to be boosted because it's become clear that being fully vaccinated uh, to the ability to help limit spread, you, you need to be boosted. So we we made that decision. That was but one. Isn't that, um, yes, absolutely. We are trying to take care of both the people we work with and the people that see our productions. So we do know vaccination and boosting is your best bet. The problem with Omicron right now is even people who are vaccinated and boosted are testing positive. And now they're not getting really, really sick. Mo- you know, they're not going to the hospital. That is all great. But what we're seeing in the theater industry is that um, so many people are testing positive with this variant. And that's the scary thing, even, uh, you know, testing three times a week and being really careful. Um, You know, I there is no blame to put on anyone who's being who's testing positive, but it's it's happening. Sure. But I think it's it's so easy to. and I get this way to be freaked out by how many people we know who are vaxxed and boosted, who are getting sick. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that you are still dramatically less likely to not even to, to get seriously ill, but still dramatically less likely to even get asymptomatically sick if right. you are vaccinated and boosted. And so the impacts for us as a field with people who test positive, who may be asymptomatic or only mildly ill with the sorts of cold-like symptoms that normally we would have in the before days still come to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've got a lot of that breaking through, but right. we have to keep reminding ourselves that the boosting dramatically reduces your risk of all the scenarios, asymptomatic, minor symptoms, serious, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but yeah, so now, uh, you know, our next big decision was 
how do we define fully vaccinated? We've talked on the podcast before about our audience protocols and, you know, that we were very early on in requiring that our audience needed to be showing proof of vaccination as well as being masked for our shows. Um, and now do we change our definition of what it means to be fully vaccinated to include having been boosted? I hope so. I mean, yeah. and that's, and that's <laughs> yeah. where, that's where you see places going. I mean, you know, starting with, uh, well, it started with the Met in, uh, in New York it was the first that I can recall about six weeks ago or a month ago that said they were going to require boosting. The public in New York is going even further, which is going to require proof of boosting and a proof of a negative test. Um, I, I, and you're starting to see in Chicago, I have not yet seen in Wisconsin theaters that are requiring uh, proof of boosting. And, you know, really, it, even with all that's said about breakthroughs, the chances of having a breakthrough are lessened if one is boosted, and the chance of passing on the virus are lessened if one is boosted. So for the same reasons, if, if one is going to make the case that uh, that we could require vaccination and should in the first place, then I don't see how you can principally, in, in a principled way, make the argument that you can't also or shouldn't also require boosting. The one caveat I've seen, and I've seen some Chicago theaters that originally came out and said they were going to require boosting, and now they've tweaked it because you don't, you don't want to discourage people from starting a vaccination regimen, is if somebody has is, is not yet eligible to be boosted, um, then theaters will accept the two shots or one shot in the J&J case as proof of full vaccination, which I right. think is absolutely right. Well, absolutely right. And because if you've only recently had your first wave of vaccines, then you've got a higher level of protection. And so you're in terms of what you're bringing into the theater, it's kind of equivalent to someone who got vaccinated early right. and has now been boosted. And, you know, spoiler alert, Yes, we're going to be requiring that those eligible for boosters have need to have received a booster to be in, in our audience for our show that opens in late February. Because um, I agree with you. I mean, we what we've learned, at least for our audience, and we are in an area of the country and an area of our state where people take public health very seriously, both personally and then for the broader community. So we have not had to, unlike some of our colleagues, deal with a lot of pushback on our safety requirements. Um, what we've learned from, from our audience here is that they are more likely to come if they think we are taking their safety and the community safety really seriously. Um, so we are, we are hopeful that it's not only going to be the correct and um, ethical thing to do in terms of protecting people's health, but we also hope that it's going to be a wise business decision that will encourage more ticket sales um, for our shows. Well, I think it's interesting that when uh, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago implemented a mandatory vaccination for restaurants uh, a few weeks back, the Restaurant Association, by and large, came out just applauding her for having done so. I mean, they didn't want to have to step out on their own and be stuck with the onus of having to deal with potentially unruly customers, but with the law behind them, they were really, really happy. And Jen, for just the reason that you've said, from a business standpoint, I think it makes people feel more comfortable. I know I currently feel more comfortable in a theater um, than I do in a cinema, than I do in a grocery store, um, than I do really anywhere else I can think of in public, because I know that everybody around me um, is, is masked and, and, and vast. A footnote, uh, except when they're, you know, drinking coffee or beverages. And, and why, given what we now know about Omicron, any theater thinks it's responsible, no matter how much money they're making on concessions, to allow concessions into the theater is beyond me. I mean, that's just sort of, 
it really has to stop. Um, uh, and, and it's just, you know, you can have just a few seconds of being unmasked with Omicron and you're exponentially increasing the, the possibility of contagion and no theater is being responsible if they are allowing concessions into the theater, period. I don't, I just don't see the argument for that. And I find it, it puts people like me in the position of having to play traffic cop unless ushers are going to do it and remind people between sips of coffee to put their mask back on. And that's not why I go to the theater and that's not my job. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it too, is we have to, um, I, I mean, I'm certainly in agreement for, for right now, uh, Mike. And I think what's going to be really interesting to see is what do things look like a month from now or two months from now, you know, for those of us really following following the science and following what's happening in other countries and what, you know, the, the CDC is projecting, what our local Dane County public health here in Madison is projecting, you know, there's, there's no guarantees and, you know, predictions are a fool's game as we've learned these last couple of years, but all the signs seem to point to at some point in the, this spring, being back in a place much more similar to where we were in the middle of the fall. And so then a lot of these, I still think boot, requiring boosters is important. And at that point, if we've already required it for our earlier shows, it becomes, you know, kind of moot. Uh, but I think questions like, can people sell, you know, we don't really deal with concessions these days here at Forward, but I think for companies that do, and um, that, that may become less of a concern, you know, if Omicron fades as right. rapidly as it rose, and then you're dealing with a, a fully vaxxed and boosted audience, with good ventilation and all those other good things, then, you know, we, we hopefully are back to the place where it's okay, have a beverage, have a drink with, with your theater and, and you're not freaking out everybody around you. But I, I, your point, Mike, I think is well taken that right at this moment, sitting next to somebody and having them take their mask off in an indoor setting feels, you know, alarming. Right. And I think if nothing else, what we have learned during this whole thing, um, and God bless theater artists, is they've always been amazing at, to, to use the overused word pivoting on a dime. That's been true as long as there's been theater artists. Um, and the flexibility they have shown and the flexibility we need to show on all these kinds of things is, is at the top of the list. It, what, it's what makes me feel right now for all the things that are dark and dire you know, with Broadway having its worst Christmas season since 2003, um, with, you know, numbers being just horribly uh, off everywhere, it makes me feel positive about going forward. Yes, shows are getting postponed or canceled or performances at least are, but you see a very different landscape than what we saw in March of 2020, because by and large, shows that are being postponed are only being kicked down the road a few weeks uh, or a month. Um, shows where performances are being canceled are coming back. I mean, the most inspiring example for me personally experienced was just last weekend, audiences were in their seats at Marriott Theater for a matinee uh, at Kiss Me Kate, uh, and they were sent home. And both performances had to be canceled last Saturday. Last Saturday being, let's see, what day is today? Uh, middle of January is where we are right now. So whatever that Saturday was. Um, and because somebody had tested positive, they came back. On Sunday, um, because more and more companies now are, are as, as Forward has done, uh, involving more and more uh, swings or reserves um, or understudies uh, as part of their repertoire, and they were able to uh, perform both Sunday matinees. And that is a 
constant theme I'm seeing. Shows that even closed down for a week uh, in New York and in Chicago are nevertheless continuing on with the run. And it's both inspiring to be part of that and to watch that and to see how badly these actors want to perform. And it gives me hope for a business which has really been battered in terms of, unlike Forward, having lost so much holiday season uh, revenue, which is kind of scary. I will. Yeah. Go ahead, Julie. Well, I was just going to say, we're talking a lot about audience and, and keeping them safe. And um, the thing that, that is always in my head about forward, we really have tried very hard to follow all of the equity rules, follow all of the science, do what needs to happen. Um, Everybody in this country is testing actors right now, at least three times a week. Often, like I know on Broadway, they were doing every day. Go to your Walgreens right now and try to get a Bionex test. It's almost impossible. And there's something has got to change. If our requirements are to make sure everyone's tested on a regular basis, then we have to have access to those tests. And right now, we have a company manager that is, you know, looking through the all over the internet as soon as she finds something that's available, she screams, buy, buy, buy. We're like, we're like Wall Street in our office. And it's, that's a little bit crazy. And I certainly hope um, access to those tests, um, the PCR tests have got to be coming back at less time than three days. Three days is an unacceptable amount of time to get a PCR test back. So those are those we want to do the right thing. And those are, those are, that's frustrating. It's frustrating not to have access to the tools we need. Well, it's, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, I I don't want to get too much on the soapbox. This is a huge failure for this current political administration in the United States, because the rest of the world saw this coming and has dealt with it um, so much better. Enough on that. I mean, one of the reasons Mrs. Doubtfire postponed for two months in New York is because testing was costing them $30,000 a week um, for exactly the kinds of reasons, Julie, that you are talking about. Tests just cannot um, cannot be had. I am nervous about you know, three shows in New York uh, in ways that to me seem like they're going uh, doing an end run around union contracts, um, postponing for as long as they are. That's Mrs. Doubtfire, Mockingbird, and um, Girl from the North Country. Um, you know, that's that should be negotiated. It's not being negotiated with the union. There's no guarantee that these actors who are being laid off are going to be able to come back. Uh, no contractual guarantee. That is, they're losing equity health weeks. Um, and I get it from the producer's standpoint. I mean, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire lost $3 million in one week, a million and a half in expenses and a million and a half in return tickets um, before they made the decision to postpone. So the producers are in a tough spot. I understand that. But there's got to be some more co- cooperation between the Theater League and the actual uh, and between them and equity to sort of work out a, a fairer uh, solution to how this is going to how this is going to go. Yeah, I mean, I will uh, say, I mean, that's what that that's the world of commercial theater. Um, you know, it's it's different when you work for a nonprofit and you you're mission driven and you have a lot of your revenues that come from places other than ticket revenue. Um, you know, I, I yes, it it is it is horrible and awful for those artists. Uh, I'm not sure what else those producers are supposed to do. And 
I honestly don't know that the union is focused on or interested in coming up with a compromise for, for those producers at the moment. And I know that there's been a lot of talk about the um, rescue plan funds that a lot of those Broadway shows got. Some of them got, you know, as much as $10 million. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to defend, you know, capitalism or commercial theater or any of that. But as you say, if you lose one and a half, two and a half, three million dollars a week, that $10 million that also helped pay for, you know, the theaters that sat empty and the rent and the utilities and then having to refit costumes and go back into like, it's really, really, really expensive to make theater. It's incredibly expensive to make Broadway theater and you can't run it losing that much money. Um, and so I, I, this is not to say that the producers were right or wrong or that, that, you know, I just, I, I I, I don't think staying open or closing for only a couple of weeks solved the issue. These are normally very, very quiet, slow weeks under normal circumstances for Broadway ticket sales. And I, I just going back to something you said earlier, Mike, you're right. A lot of theaters only postponed their shows for a couple of weeks or a month. But I know a lot of regional companies that postpone shows into next season. Um, yes. You know, for companies like Forward that don't have control over our spaces, you know, that we share our performance spaces with other organizations, um, it, it's not always feasible to just tweak your schedule. Sometimes you have to completely upend it. And so for a lot of companies, this last four to six weeks dealing with Omicron has forced some of the same kinds of tough decisions that the early days of the pandemic um, threatened us with. Either moved it or ended ended the run prematurely. That's mm -hmm. happened quite a lot as yep. well. Yeah, I'm. You know, it's interesting um, talking a little more about Broadway because I think that's been a, a focus of a lot of people's attention and and understandably so, especially over the holidays when there's so much happening and so much news happening. Um, you know, it was very easy to get the sense that everything was closing because so many performances were getting canceled due to exposure. But I, I do think it's worth noting that most of the plays were able to keep going. I mean, they might've had a, a canceled performance here or there, but um, many of the plays were able to keep performing during those weeks. And I think for a lot of the same reasons that uh, it, it feels maybe less scary for um, productions like the ones we do here, if, you know, smaller, um, easier to have uh, an understudy to performer ratio that that is um, sustainable. You know, you're not going to have a big 30 person cast Broadway musical and have 30 understudies one to one all ready to go on. But you could do that in a play with a cast of five and have five understudies. I mean, that's kind of the approach we're taking here. Um, and that combined with the fact that there's less, you know, singing and dancing and um, uh, crowded people on stage. I, I just think that uh, the, the stories of the, of the plays that were able to keep going, the productions that were able to keep going, got lost in the stories about all the cancellations. And I think it's important to hold both those things in our mind at the same time, because it is possible to continue keeping shows open and, you know, some extraordinary measures. I mean, was it Thoughts of a Colored Man where the playwright went on for a performance holding holding his script? You know, things like that, which um, 
feel exciting and and you know that sort of like let's put on a show in a barn can do energy that we're so used to here um i got to see oh go ahead mike no 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 go 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 well i was gonna say um this sort of ties into a slightly different topic a related topic um i was fortunate to get to see the first night streaming performance of Clyde's, Lynn Nada Just Play Clyde's, which streamed as live streamed from the Broadway house for the last two weeks of their run. Um, and it's a whole separate conversation, this idea of streaming live. I think that's, a, I don't understand that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we uh, that first night they were doing it, we were, it was a great example because those of us with the ticket for that night missed the first 17 minutes of the play because the stream wasn't working, but the play was going on ahead in New York. Um, I'd, I'd read it, so it, it was fine. Um, but what I, what I wanted to mention was that was really um, great. I mean, it's a cast of five and um, two of the actors were um, the understudies uh, that went on for that first. And in fact, for at least one of them, it was his first performance. So his Broadway debut, and it was streaming live. Um, fun side note is it was um, the actor playing the character of Jason. That character is a carryover from Lynn Nottage's play, Sweat. And the understudy was the actor who had originated the role of Jason at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So that's great. That was just fun. Um, and just sort of, a, I wanted to share the story because I think it's a, a, an example of the kind of, well, one way or another, the show will go on. Um, and that sometimes you see things that are really special and, you know, hooray and thank God for understudies because they are truly the backbone saving, um, theater right now. No, I mean, I was, you know, I mean, uh, Charlotte St. Martin's comment on understudies, which was rightly pillory, um, was ridiculous in terms of how, you know, they're, they're not as good or, you know, the reason why people aren't going to see shows is because they don't want to see a bunch of understudies. What, what a bunch of ridiculous hooey. Um, that was, I was going to say on the closings point taken, it's mostly musicals that have closed and some of them, God help us, Diana couldn't close soon enough as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, but, but you thoughts of a colored man is a play that closed early, um, to use that example. And, you know, as of this coming Sunday, 19 of only 19 of the 41 Broadway houses are going to have plays in them or, or I mean, anything in them at all plays or musicals. I mean, that's, that's scary. That's really scary in terms of the the, the number. Um, but it's but also yes. about tourism, Mike. Do well, you think sure. that well, people that's... aren't getting on planes to go but, have but, weekend vacations in yes. New York? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, and it's like, yes, the winter months are slower, but the winter months in 2020, when I was actually there, the occupancy rate of Broadway theaters was 94%. Right now it's under 50 um, so, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic too about where we're going, but I don't want to undersell how bad things are. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, right it's now. terrible now. It's, there are <laughs> many signs for optimism in the near term future. Um, but I do think, I think to your point, Mike, what, what this really prompts, I hope is discussion of perhaps another round of government support. Because for companies that do produce over that time of year, and it's not just Broadway, but I think of all the, the small, medium and large regional companies that fund their entire season of bold and, and new work with their productions of A Christmas Carol. And so many of those productions lost performances and lost revenue. Um, 
I think there's a really strong case to be made for another round of um, funding similar to what we saw from the CARES Act or the Rescue Plan. And uh, I, I, I hope that something like that is possible to get us you know, back on track uh, as a field from, from this rough time. Well, we can we can all send telegrams to Senator Ranchin and see what he's got to has to say about that. Well, um, we won't talk about him, but we, we can maybe go to Schumer. Um, Chuck Schumer has been a good friend. <laughs> on streaming, which is which is a little bit less controversial, um, I too am. You know, in, in terms of the live thing, I have to say, from the ones I've sought in Britain and then at the Goodman over the summer in Chicago, there is something very exciting about being at home and watching at the same time as other people are watching. It's all psychological, but it, it to me, it does make a difference. They just got to get the kinks worked out. Well, um, I think you can have that by filming it in advance, but then if you want to have that sensation of communal experience, then you just stream it at a fixed time. That's what I but you've rec- it. But yeah. yeah, but you've recorded it. The idea of streaming it live there are, I mean, there's technical difficulties even when you've pre-filmed it. And, you know, using my Clyde's example, had it been a filmed production that they were streaming at 7 p.m. Eastern versus uh, a, a live stream from the theater and it took 17 minutes to get it sorted, then you would have started the broadcast at 7.17 and everyone would have seen the whole play. Um, there's no that's reason just my preference. It, it, we're two headache. years into this. We don't need to see anything live. Well, I, I'm going to res- I'm going to respectfully disagree. And out but in the world, I, I, but this isn't a mountain. I, I I'll die on a mountain. I will die on though is that the lowest price ticket for Clyde's was fifty nine dollars. And I'm sorry, but like we need to move forward. If it's great that Broadway's finally you know dipping the you know the epidermis of its tiniest toe into the streaming waters that have been engulfing and washing over us with love for the last two years. Hallelujah! But they need to do better. Than that, I think that Clyde's is the thin edge of the wedge. Hopefully, we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. But they need to come down with more democratic pricing. Yeah, um, I'm not going to criticize them on that though, because they're the first ones being brave enough to actually do this, and they had to come up with a scenario where the licensing houses and the unions and everybody else would sign off on such a bold experiment, which is maybe doesn't feel bold for the regional companies that were doing this all during this COVID time, mm-hmm. but for Broadway, this is an enormous. Um, achievement that they even got people to agree to let them try it. So I'm, I, I, I want to give all kudos to Lynn Nottage and the producers of Clyde's and the unions and everybody else who made it happen. I hope I have no idea how many of those fifty nine dollar tickets they sold. I hope it was all of them. Um, you know, and yes, obviously that is not a sustainable, accessible ticket price. But for an experiment like this, I think just all, all kudos. And I, I'm just so grateful because we, as we've talked about on past issue uh, episodes of the podcast, we really hope to continue offering streaming as an accessibility option, even as COVID fades knockwood from our lives. Um, and we, uh, but we can't, we can't get there in terms of the permissions um, and, and sort of industry standards for doing that. We need bigger players like the Broadway producers to kind of tread that path. So um, I'm, I'm just so glad that it happened at all. Jen, question for you, um, both in terms of here at Forward, you know, where I have a little bit more insight into the process, but also in terms of your discussions with other artistic directors generally, is this latest hiccup on top of everything we've already been experiencing, influencing what people are thinking, what artistic directors are thinking about programming for next season? 
I, I'm not hearing that from people does not mean that it's not. Um, right. I mean, it's not, not for us. I mean, I'm still, I'm not, it's not blind optimism because it's based on, you know, reading and research and science and listening to the experts, but I, I'm, I'm not anticipating really scary um, conditions by next fall. And so I, I'm not changing our programming plans for next, for the 22-23 season um, because of Omicron. But, um, but we're also in, you know, we, we produce throughout, throughout all of the shutdown too. So we're just not, you know, everybody's in a different boat. Um, all of which is to say, it, to answer your question, it's not negatively impacting my planning. I haven't heard others say that it is, but I'm sure there are many companies out there where it has been an impact. If only for companies, if, if they took a major financial hit during these last weeks, they may need to be more conservative next season. For, either for that either smaller shows or, you know, a real um, effort to do the the audience winning, uh, you know, this will this will bring in the big groups because um, I do think that there are a lot of our peers that um, have been significantly impacted financially from from this pandemic. Yeah. And I am worried about them. I yeah. believe they will survive, but it has been it has been really tough for a lot of companies. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I want to sort of wind us up. We've been talking for a bit about all of this, you know, fingers crossed that uh, as we meet for future episodes, we will already be seeing, you know, happier news and improvements for not just for our field, but just for, you know, um, public health in general. Um, I do want to just take a minute before we wrap up to, um, to just, pay a really quick tribute to our um, our colleague in the field, Terry Teachout, who we lost very unexpectedly last week. Um, you know, fellow theater podcaster. Um, he was one of the triumvirate for three on the aisle for many years. Um, and a, a, a critic, as, a, as the critic for the Wall Street Journal, someone who uh, was one of the few truly national critics of, for theater in the country and who really did make an effort even before the pandemic to cover uh, theater around the country. And, and during the pandemic, I think was one of the first to take really seriously the responsibility to help uplift good theater that was being made for streaming. And um, we were really honored that we came to his attention here at Forward with a couple of our streaming productions in uh, early 2021. Um, and we were really looking forward to, uh, deepening our relationship with him in the years to come. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was a, a, a smart man and a passionate, um, defender and advocate for theater and, uh, is gone much too soon. And it's just a tremendous, tremendous loss. Well, he, you know, I mean, obviously I knew him, um, from being involved in this, in this same profession and what you got from him in person as well as from what he wrote, is something that way too few critics events these days, which is not only was he unafraid about being harsh when he thought something was, was bad, and he particularly hated works that were pretentious. I mean, he was a small Midwestern boy, and he kept that populism through to the end, very proud of his Missouri roots, talked about how he missed it. But he was also unabashedly unafraid to come out and say something was fantastic. 
And too few critics pull their punches that way too. They, they, are, they feel like they have to have one sort of criticism in their review or they won't be taken seriously. And if Terry loved something, you knew he loved it. Um, and that kind of passion, Jen, you used the right word, is we need more of that from our critics who are less self-conscious and less focused on themselves and more like him, just 100% lovers of, of art. And also people who are capable of crossing disciplines and not just somebody who's just focused on theater. I mean, Terry wrote well about books and music and dance. And to the degree that somebody can take the time to learn more about some of those things, it will inform and make better their theater criticism. It certainly did with him. A great loss. Well, great. we send our, our uh, condolences to his uh, loved ones and his colleagues, and um, we will be continuing to be inspired by his body of work. Um, but for now, we will say that that is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jen Uphoff-Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden, and you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook and Twitter at Theater Forward. Theater is always spelled with an E-R. And if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in. And please be sure to leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. We're so grateful to have you listening, and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.